This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack podcast. And yeah, voices gone a bit missing over the past few days. So apologies for how I'm sounding. But we do have some interesting stories on this podcast, and one of them is talking about sex toys, vibrators, and how they're sold in stores across Australia. Like, did you know in some parts of the country, you can buy them in chemists, big department stores, but in other parts, it's illegal. Like in one state, shop workers could face jail time for even advertising them. So why is that? And could it all change? Because more and more we're seeing big conventional shops like department stores wanting to sell these sexual wellness products. Times are changing. So we're going to be looking at the rules around this, how they're different around the country. Also coming up, we're going to check in on a massive protest at Newcastle Port that saw more than 100 people arrested. First, though. Hack. The federal government has struck a deal with the Greens to overhaul the Murray-Darling Basin plan on Triple J. Yeah, I know this sounds pretty weird, but there actually aren't as many issues in politics that get people fired up as much as water. Specifically, who's getting water out of our biggest river system, the massive Murray-Darling Basin in southeastern Australia? The government put forward a plan to iron it all out, get the details sorted, but that's stalled because of a lack of support. But today, there was a breakthrough. The Greens and the government have agreed to a deal. So what is it? Shalala Madora explains. Prime Minister Albanese, Tanya Plebisek and your government, I'm angry for our region. Stop listening to the bureaucrats and self-interest groups. Farmers and irrigators in Shepparton in northern Victoria came together today to protest the government's Murray-Darling Basin plan. And they didn't hold back. I've got three simple messages that we want Tanya Plebisek to hear. Don't be lazy. Don't be damaging and don't be dumb. Thank you. In a nutshell, the Murray-Darling Basin Plan is an agreement between all the different users of Australia's largest river system. And every single one has competing interests. The existing plan has allocations for water for environmental reasons, but it's short about 750 gigalitres a year. Our river, for far too long, has been at the whims of self-interest and greed. The federal government announced the legislation back in August, but it stalled in the Senate. Until today, when the Greens and Labor struck a deal that would put more water into environmental flows downstream to make the river system healthier. Here's Green Senator Sarah Hanson-Young. For over a decade, South Australia has been fighting for the 450 gigalitres of water to be in law to be guaranteed, to be delivered, because it's what science says is needed to save the lower reaches of the Murray, the Coorong and the lower lakes. There's also an extra $100 million for the 40 or so First Nations communities along the river system and an independent audit of environmental water allocation. But the most controversial element in the deal is the increased use of buybacks. Buybacks are when the government pays top dollar for a farmer's licence to pump water out of the rivers and puts that allocation back towards environmental water flow. Save our towns. Save our towns. But as Shadow Water Minister Perrin Davey told an anti-buyback rally last week, that has ripple effects. By coming to take water off our communities over and over again, you will get the same outcome. And that is a loss of jobs, a loss of morale 
and a loss of the socioeconomic vibrance of this community. The old plan relied on the states and territories to create infrastructure to save water and limited the federal government's ability to use buybacks. But reports have found infrastructure projects were super exy, taking too long and just didn't really work as they should. They're only on track to deliver at most half of what was promised. As we go into another hot, dry spell, it is inconceivable that we fail the environment and fail inland communities again as a parliament. Minister for the Environment Tanya Plibersek says parliament needs to pass these laws before it goes on summer break at the end of next week. Because even with the green support, it's not a done deal. And I want to urge other senators who are thinking about the Restoring Our Rivers Bill this week uh, to get on board. The government still needs two more votes in the Senate from the crossbench, that is, people who aren't in Labor or the Coalition, to get the legislation over the line. Senators like Independent David Pocock, who's not committing. I'm not there yet in terms of support and continue to sort of talk and negotiate with, with government. Part of the new plan is giving the government more time to get projects off the ground and get water to where it's needed. But if the new plan doesn't pass the Senate by December 31st, then it's back to square one. Hack on Triple J. Shalala Madura with that update. I want to get an opinion on this now from a farmer. We've got John Hall with us, and John helps run Cactus Country, which is his family's cactus business on the Murray River in regional Victoria. He's with us now. G'day, John. Thanks for coming on Hack. Thanks for having me. It's probably the first time we've spoken to a cactus farmer on Hack, I reckon. <laughs> what, what do you think? <laughs> first for everything. Yeah, first for everything. What do you think of this Murray Darling deal between the government and the Greens? Oh, look, I. I really struggle to see the common sense um, in all of this, to be honest. Like when you really look at the issue and you look at the Darling um, Basin Plan and realise that buying water out of the Murray and trying to send it back up a river, that's not how water flows. Um, I think that this is a really naive and political perspective and it, it's not looking at the communities that affects at all. I think that um, farmers in Australia are become you know seen in a certain way as like a, a community that we no longer want to support and I think they're trying to make this really strong case that it's going to help the environment but I really don't think this helps the environment at all. So I mean we've heard that there have been protests already, uh, farmers warning this could lead to the death of communities. Can you explain why that is? Like why would it lead to communities uh, really suffering? Yeah, look, I really, I really empathise with um, people from the city trying to understand this issue. It's, it's something that um, at, at its face doesn't feel like it's going to affect you in the city. But when you consider how, how big our populations are, like some small towns purely rely on farming income to create the economic activity to keep those towns alive. But the broader picture of it is you wouldn't have a business like Cactus Country, for example, without agriculture because... We rely on the income that agriculture brings in and the people that it employs to be our customers. So cafes effectively shut down. All of your big industries shut down. If the water gets too expensive to buy or if there's not enough of it to use because it's been sold to the environment, then all of a sudden agriculture in our region, which is known as the food bowl, um, it all goes away. So it's a huge devastating impact on a very broad region. So what is the alternative? I mean, 
you know, how do you get to an agreement to do more for the river system, the environment? Because it's clear there are some big environmental issues that need sorting out if you're not, mm. you know, doing these buybacks or working in that direction. Yeah, look, I, I think it's worth noting that we've already given a lot back from our region in the last water buyback. And I think that, you know, if anybody was really serious about educating themselves on this issue, then I would really encourage them to look at the Murray-Darling Basin Plan and how much water, you know, these large stations that are up along that river system pull out of the Murray-Darling Basin. Um, you know, there's much better solutions up there, but the problem is, and this is how politics works in Australia, if you've got money, you've got power, you've got influence, you can lobby government and you can get the things that you need in order for your industry to survive. Um, we don't have that in our part of the region because we have a lot of small operators and they don't have enough power. And for the, for the political parties to get their votes, they need to have people in the city believe their messaging. And by simply playing the environment card these days, you can pretty much get anything you want. And the sad reality is that the majority of people in cities will not look into this issue. They'll just look at it at face value. Um, like I said earlier, I don't think that they see farming communities um, really at all in their world. Food just turns up in the supermarket. They don't know where it comes from. Um, the cost of goods will absolutely go up. If you, if you think that the cost of living is hurting, hurting you now, that is only going to get worse and worse if uh, if these water buybacks go through. Well, look, um, we do appreciate your take on this. Um, there's so many different uh, views. Uh, this is one of them. Cactus farmer John Hall, thank you very much for coming on Hack. Thanks for having me. And let's get another view now from another young farmer. Kate McBride is a researcher at the Australia Institute. She's also a fifth generation grazier. Hey, Kate, thanks for coming on Hack. Thanks for having me on. So you know this river system well, right? Because you and your family have farmed in an area that uses it. Absolutely. So I was born and brought up on the Darling Barker River system out in far west New South Wales around the township of Menindi. Now, Menindi was put on the map a number of times, unfortunately, because of dry rivers, but most recently mass fish kills. And back in 2019, when we saw the first of these huge fish kills, and there was a video of two fellas standing in the Darling Barker holding massive big Murray cod. Well, I actually took that video. The, one of the fellas in that video is my old man. So I've experienced the absolute worst that our environment has experienced over the last few years um, from those dry riverbeds, but also mass fish kills. And it's pretty clear that our river is sick. And that's what these fish kills are telling us. The most recent was this March where between 20 and 30 million native fish died. And that is why this legislation is so important and needs to be passed because it's essentially trying to protect our river system moving forward and find that balance between environment and consumptive use. These water buybacks are pretty controversial. Like there are a lot of farmers out there that are against them. They say that they're going to end up like ruining regional communities, ruin, ruin farming. How do you respond to those claims? It's quite interesting the rhetoric that we're hearing from certain parts of certain lobby groups, I suppose, about buybacks. Now, the Australia Institute actually did polling and we found that there's majority support for water buybacks across basin states, party lines and even in regional Australia. So they're not nearly as unpopular as people make them out to be. Do you reckon that extends to farming communities, though, that in farming communities uh, a lot of people do support these? Because we have saw, like, even today, there have been uh, big protests, a convoy of trucks, tractors driving through Shepparton, farmers furious over these proposed amendments. It's clear a lot of farming communities aren't happy. 
It's kind of interesting because I think to actually sort of understand this a little bit, we need to think about what a buyback is. And so all a buyback is are willing sellers offering their licence to the government so that that water can then go to the environment. So this is not forcing any farmer to actually sell their water licence. And I'm actually working with a number of irrigators and farmers who are saying, if I want to sell my water licence to the government, I should have that right and that freedom to choose where my water goes. But when it comes to how unpopular they are, we did that polling in regional Australia and it did show that the majority of regional Australians do support voluntary water buybacks. And that's the big key thing. These are voluntary and that's what people back. Do you think that there is a a bit of a risk, though, that communities could suffer or even die out because of, of these kinds of policies? I'm glad you asked that because we are seeing regional decline right across the country. And what people are trying to do is tie that regional decline with buybacks. This is a regional decline that we are seeing because of government neglect for decades. Regional Australia needs significant investment. And I've released research showing, you know, even the life expectancy is different between regional and city Australians. We need big investment, but buybacks aren't the cause of this decline. And yes, we need to work out what exactly that is, but pointing the finger is a distraction from what is actually going on. Because towns that have had buybacks and haven't had buybacks are both experiencing that regional decline. I think water is the most precious resource that we have in this country. And I think, unfortunately, people aren't connected on where their water comes from, but also the impact on, you know, the food and clothes that they eat and drink as well. And I think that's really important for people to recognising that as well and young people getting engaged in this space because all this basin plan is doing is trying to put some water back in the environment. And this basin plan is not anti-irrigation, it's anti-over-extraction to try and find a balance so that our environment is healthy moving forward. Well, there's definitely going to be a lot more reaction to it, but we appreciate your take. Kate McBride, researcher at the Australian Institute, thank you very much for joining us on Hack. Thanks for having me on. And a lot of messages on the text line at the moment, people with uh, different views. Someone says, yeah, if we need to leave more water in the river, what's the realistic alternative to buybacks? Other people supporting uh, farmers and their protests? Look, it's a big issue. We're going to keep covering it. Time to move on. Hack. We don't believe it belongs in specialty stores. We don't believe it belongs behind closed stores. On Triple J. Yeah, just a heads up. We're chatting about toys now the adult kind but it's a very legitimate discussion actually i'm wondering how would you feel about walking into a department store or a chemist and picking up a sex toy and maybe you have maybe you've done this already because in many parts of the country you can do that these places sell adult toys like it used to just be only adult only stores tucked away in random places but more and more across australia retail outlets want a piece of the sexual wellness industry, which is what it's now known as. Big shops like David Jones, Chemist Warehouse. There is one issue though, and that is that there are different laws around Australia. Like for example, in New South Wales, just displaying or advertising a vibrator in a regular shop could end in jail time. So there's this growing call for changes to laws, but not everyone in the adult only industry is happy about that. Let's find out a bit more. ABC Business reporter Dan Ziffer has been looking into this. Dan, thank you very much for coming on Hack. Just to be clear, when we're talking about sexual wellness products, we're talking about sex toys. 
Absolutely, and largely we're talking about vibrators. Um, these devices are now being sold in large national branded department stores and chemists uh, across swathes of the country, although certainly not in New South Wales, and there are different restrictions in different states and in some cases with different local councils about where these items can be sold. But you will find them uh, certainly on the online stores of big retailers, but more and more in the shelves racked next to the expensive perfumes uh, in chemists and department stores across the nation. How big is the sexual wellness industry? Like from a financial point of view, what's it worth? Uh, people who work in the industry have spoken to me says it's probably about a billion dollars a year wow. in Australia. Obviously, the online shopping revolution that allows people to discreetly purchase things at home has made that probably larger. There were big spikes during COVID where there was an explosion in the number of online stores selling these devices. And now the physical stores are stepping in to take a slice of that really uh, large amount of cash. And so the issue is here that there are different rules, regulations, laws across the country. I guess it's really complicated, but generally speaking, how different are these laws? So if you look at, say, council zoning, lots of different councils have different rules about where stores can be located. If stores are just selling essentially adult goods, a lot of them have to be, say, 200 metres from a church or a school or anywhere where children might gather, like a playground. That's part of the reason why across the country, most of the kind of adult stores you see are in light industrial areas or in the very centre of cities where the rules are different again. When it comes to state-based laws, they're largely about advertising or promoting these kind of products, which is why in a lot of parts of the country, um, the windows are blacked out or there are, say, a lingerie or things like that in the front window, but never any kind of devices or anything like that. So you're seeing a real clash here between the online kind of anything goes shopping experience in Australia and then the physical environment where things can be sold in many states, but they have to be discreetly packaged, uh, almost like plain packaging for cigarettes. Interesting. So this is probably a bit of a challenge for some of these bigger shops. We're talking places like David Jones, Priceline, Chemist Warehouse, those kinds of stores, right? So when you talk to a place like DJs, they have a national footprint, right? They have stores in practically every state and territory. They know from their online sales that their customers in Australia's most popular state want to buy these devices and are buying them on online. But they certainly can't put them on the shelves in Sydney or New South Wales in the same way as I've seen them in the department store next to the expensive perfumes on the ground floor of their store in Melbourne. So they're kind of navigating all of these different regulations. And of course, the people who make these devices and sell them are doing the same thing as well. And I guess um, also the specialty stores that are selling them, like you've spoken to one shop in Melbourne uh, about you know why they're based in Melbourne and why they think it's important to kind of have these products on display. Yeah, so I spoke to a New South Wales couple who actually moved to Melbourne to open the store because what they wanted to do was have a store that was inviting to the public. So it has, it's a ground level, it has clear glass windows and all of the devices, it looks like a kind of jewellery boutique, you know, it's kind of softly lit with lots of indoor plants and all of these things are out on display. Now, in New South Wales, many of the elements I've just described about this store would be against the law. For example, in New South Wales, the stores can't be at ground level. They've got to be either upstairs or downstairs. The windows have to be blacked out, all these kind of things. And so what they wanted to do was create an inviting environment for people to come and 
talk about sensitive issues and topics and, and products, and they felt they could only do this outside of our most popular state. So all of these laws kind of do have an impact, and they mean that customers get a very different experience depending on where they live. This is Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with ABC business reporter Daniel Ziffer about sex toys being sold in department stores, chemists across Australia, the different rules, laws across Australia. It is different in every state and territory. Dan, we're talking about how strict it is in New South Wales. Is there any indication that these laws might be reviewed or changed anytime soon? Um, There isn't. I spoke to the Attorney-General's office in New South Wales. They kind of look at law reform. There's certainly nothing that is going to be reviewed in the Crimes Act, uh, which relates to this kind of uh, industry that is under review at any stage. And interestingly, the lobby for sex shop owners, which is the Eros Foundation, they don't want any change either. Their members are invested in many cases in this really weird real estate in light industrial areas. They don't want big retailers like David Jones or Priceline coming in and taking what is a pretty lucrative part of their market by selling these devices in full view in much better locations. So it's it's actually kind of strange, but the Eros Foundation who represent what you'd expect to be kind of the, the sex shop industry, they don't want any change to the law in New South Wales either. Let's have a little listen to Graham Dunn, who's the general manager of the Eros Foundation. Sex toys should be sold in areas where only adults, 18 years and older, can access. What's next? Do we see them in the corner store? Do we see them in the 7-Eleven? I don't think so. Definitely a fascinating look at, um, I don't know, um, a part of the retail industry people may not be thinking too much about, but ABC Business reporter Dan Ziffer, thanks very much for coming on Hack. All the best. And if you want to read more of Dan's story, there's a big write-up on ABC News Online, people sending in messages. Someone says, I'm all for normalising sexuality. Another person says, but brothels are legal in New South Wales. Come on. Hack. A bigger crew makes bigger actions on Triple J. We've got the biggest coal port in the world in Australia. It's in Newcastle. But it was overtaken by hundreds of protesters over the weekend. They were there for days blockading the port and demanding more action to tackle climate change. In the end, more than 100 people ended up being arrested. April McLennan explains. Singing for a better future, hundreds of climate change protesters spent the past three days gathered at the port of Newcastle. It's the world's biggest coal port. More than 150 million tonnes of coal is exported from there every year. And the protesters took turns paddling out onto the water in kayaks and other small floats to block the port's shipping lane. And they reckon their 30-hour blockade would have disrupted about eight scheduled coal ships from entering or leaving the port. I'm so, so angry that the government is destroying any chance of a future for me, my friends, my peers. I'm angry that over and over and over again, they continue to ignore and belittle the loud and angry voices of youth in this country. That's 15-year-old Neve. She was at the protest because she says she's absolutely terrified about what climate change means for her future. It's the same for 17-year-old Alex. Because we're so young, we feel like the climate crisis is a lot more immediate because we feel like it's pressing down on us and it'll affect our whole future. Whereas we feel older politicians aren't that concerned because 
it's not this big looming thing in the future for them. They might not even experience it. Police initially gave the group permission for the protest to happen, but told protest organisers they had to wrap things up by four o'clock on Sunday. But as that deadline passed, heaps of protesters overstayed their welcome on the water. And because of this, police actually ended up charging 109 people, including five children and a 97-year-old man. Rising Tide activist Zach Schofield was among those arrested. Newcastle is the largest coal port in the world and so the Newcastle community feels a, um, feels a responsibility to make sure that this industry can wind down as soon as possible uh, to make sure that we leave a safe and livable future for future generations, including my generation. New South Wales Premier Chris Minns wasn't impressed. I don't support it. I'd rather it didn't happen. We sold $40 billion worth of coal last year and we need it if we're going to transition our economy to renewable energies. Neither was Federal Hunter MP Dan Rapicoli. It's a stage of protest like they've done, like I think is a bit ridiculous personally. Uh, everybody has the right to protest and we don't want to take that away from anyone, but they need to think about the hard-working miners and the miners' families. The New South Wales Mineral Council said the protest wouldn't have had any impact on global coal demand or supply, but could damage the local economy. But Neve says the protest was important. The government needs to stop funding new coal and gas projects and they need to start funding the transition plan to renewable energy. They've been told this since before I was born. This should not be a discussion anymore. Hack on Triple J. April McLennan with that update. Let's talk a little more about what happened with the arrests around that protest because there was some concerns about um, who got arrested and... With me to explain more is Lydia Shelley, who's the president of the New South Wales Council for Civil Liberties. G'day, Lydia. Thank you very much for coming on, Hack. Thanks for having me. So you were worried about legal observers being arrested at this protest. Can you explain what is a legal observer? Well, we're concerned about everyone getting arrested, but in particular, the legal observers, look, they form a very important role when it comes to protecting our right to protest. And essentially, they're independent even if they're uh, facilitating a request from the organisers of protesters, of protest movement, sorry, they turn up and they effectively monitor the police uh, interactions and conduct towards protesters and they might take independent notes and footage and things like that. So do you know how many of these legal observers were arrested over the weekend? Um, There's at least three that we know about and we've expressed our concerns. We've written a letter to the police commissioner and it's our view that they have to be withdrawn. So those charges or fines should be withdrawn immediately. Right. And it's not the first time we've actually had to do this, by the way, um, which is incredibly disappointing. What are the rights? If you are a legal observer, like what are your rights? Well, unfortunately, um, shock horror, New South Wales doesn't have a, a specific exemption or carve out protection for legal observers. Even though legal observers have been um, recognised by the UN as being very important, uh, very important in terms of the function of ensuring that we all have the right to protest. I mean, it doesn't take a genius to work out that it's a good idea to have um, independent people monitoring high conflict and high, highly inflammatory at times protests and interactions between police and protesters. Is it possible though that people are saying they're legal observers and they're not participating in the protest but you know maybe they actually are or they're doing something that's against the law and would lead them to be arrested? Uh, Look I would have to categorically say that I have not heard of that occurring um, in any protest in Sydney 
going back a number of years. So these were people that were clearly identifiable in pink high-vis jackets. They had legal observers emblazoned over the vest. This isn't a matter where uh, there's a bunch of protesters believing and, and pretending to be that they're legal observers and doing other things. That's just simply not the case at all. These were people that were clearly identifiable as legal observers and um, who I believe informed the police of their role or attempted to inform the police uh, of their role whilst they were there. So you've sent an open letter to the New South Wales Com- Police Commissioner about this, obviously raising the concerns. Have you heard anything from police? Look, we haven't as of yet, but we are monitoring it very closely. And again, this is the second time in in two years that we've had to communicate our concerns directly with the commissioner. And quite frankly, that's just appalling. Not only do we have the right to protest under attack in New South Wales, and we have had for a while, but we're seeing now legal observers still uh, being arrested and New South Wales police fundamentally misunderstanding the important role that legal observers have um, at protest. And it shouldn't we shouldn't be doing this again in 2023. All right. Well, we're going to have to leave it there, but we appreciate your time. Lydia Shelley from the New South Wales Council for Civil Liberties, thank you very much for joining us on Hack. Thank you very much for having me. We did reach out to New South Wales Police about this and they provided us with a statement. They said uh, they gave ample time and warning to all persons who are on the craft, who are on uh, these boats, posing a danger to themselves and others in the shipping uh, channel. They said following final directions to all persons, arrests were commenced of any person who continued to commit offences and failed to adhere to the directions of police. Hack on Triple J. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.